The Bible gives us many descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the great high priest, the good shepherd, the Lamb of God, the fullness of God, the Son of God, the man of God, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the Alpha and the Omega, the giver of life, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the great healer, the ruler of the waves, the Prince of Peace, even Almighty God. The list is, uh, is extensive. And this is just a sampling of what the Scriptures describe about Jesus Christ. In closing the series on biblical anthropology today, I want you to see that Jesus is also the ultimate man. The ultimate man who not only saves and redeems mankind, but also completely fulfills the dominion mandate that God originally gave to man back in the garden. Jesus is the ruler of kings of the earth in the ultimate sense. That's a description, the old ruler of kings in Revelation 1.5. He's also called the king of kings. He is that, but he's going to demonstrate that in an earthly sense, as we'll see uh, here this morning. To kind of set the platform for discussing this, I want you to turn to the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. And again, we'll be looking this morning. We won't be doing an exposition of a scripture uh, this morning. We're doing a high-level survey. But these scriptures help us, to, help us to get our minds oriented to thinking about the topic this morning. And really, really, if you could summarize it, I want to say that this, the summary is that the glory of Christ in humanity. That's what we're looking at. Right? Man failed Christ prevails. So we're looking at this morning as the culmination of our series, the glory of Christ in humanity. I'd like to read to you uh, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3 and going to verse 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, <clears throat> according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. And I really want you to contemplate what that this is the last part of verse 10, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. Christ is really the culmination and the focal point of creation and of God's plan for, to, to bring glory to his name. I mean, think about, think about that. Now that you've, you've heard that, and it's not the first time you've heard that, but in, in the light of hearing that, that there's a summing up of all things in Christ, think about then what the Lord did in the beginning of Genesis 1 is he gave man this mandate. 
And we know that he failed. But let us listen to Genesis 1, 26 to 28 a moment. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. He blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there is this mandate given, this dominion mandate given in chapter 1 of Genesis. right? But then... Man failed, as we're going to look at. But what I want you to see is the summing up of all things in Christ and how Christ fulfills that. So if we just go to the final book, Revelation chapter 5, just we get this glimpse of Christ's work, even, even here, even in, in Revelation 5. And we'll look at more of this in a moment, but this, is, this gives you a flavor for where we're going. Revelation chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell, fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Notice that last phrase, and they will reign. Though though man failed and and could not ultimately reign for the glory of God in Genesis, through Christ, man will reign with Christ upon earth and fulfill all that God has uh, intended and commanded for man. So this morning, we're, we'll be looking at the whole aspect of, of Christ fulfilling uh, that, that biblical mandate that he gave to man. And all this flows from... Um, the systematic theology book I've mentioned before, Biblical Doctrine by Mayhew and MacArthur. So there's nothing, um, nothing original I'm going to say this morning that, that really isn't already there. But I think it's important for us to really summarize this and, and bring this uh, to, uh, to a culmination in Christ, to bring the study to a culmination in Christ. So this morning, again, just looking at how a biblical anthropology understands that Jesus Christ is the ultimate man who, as God incarnate, not only saves and redeems mankind, but completely fulfills that dominion mandate that God gave to man in the garden. Now, before we look at at really how it's culminated, it's important that we set the stage uh, for looking at and exalting Christ. So remember that God created man and gave him responsibilities over creation. We read Genesis 1. So at the culmination of a literal six-day creation, God created man in two genders, male and female. And starting from the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, mankind was mandated both to multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it and rule it um, on God's behalf. 
So again, just thinking through Genesis 1.28, where God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It was an all-encompassing mandate. And notice that Genesis 1.28 starts with the fact that God blessed them. It would that the mandate, carrying out the mandate, would require God's blessings and God's empowerment. Man's primary responsibility was and is to have dominion over the earth as God's representative. Man was to subdue and to rule the earth. As James Boyce explains, sin incapacitated man as far as his ability to be able to have dominion over the earth as God's representative. He said this, and I quote, In his sin, man either tends to dominate and thus violate creation, subjecting it to his own selfish ends, or else he tends to fall down and worship the creation, not realizing that his debasement is brought about in the process. Unquote. So the fact that man's sin causes him to respond in a way to, that is uh, both sinful, in one case, uh, the dominion mandate plays out as a as basically a, a domineering and and th- and a power and authority that's carried out for his own selfish desires. On the other hand, you have the person who then falls down and worships creation and wants to put himself under creation rather than being uh, having dominion over it. The dominion mandate uh, carried originally carried none of the sinful characteristics that we come now to associate with words like dominion, rule, and subdue. When God said, have dominion over the earth, when he said to rule the earth, when he said said to subdue the earth, it has none of those negative connotations. It was to rule, man was to rule in God's stead. As Harold Stiggers points out in his commentary on Genesis, he said, the creation of man is unique among all God's creative works. He was created for God himself, for fellowship in the truth and the glory of God. The purpose of that creation is important. It involves a covenant that of administering for God a perfect creation. The notion of the word subdue involves obedience to a divine purpose and the bending of the whole man to the stewardship of blessings. The work in which Adam was to engage was to bring him the approval and blessing of God, and the development of all of which the animals and inanimate world was capable of for the glory of God. This is contained in the mandate of Adam's stewardship, unquote. So God gave Adam and Eve the mandate to subdue and to rule. And and, in our minds, well, all we know basically is a lot of sinful domination and ruling, but that was not the mandate at all. God gave them a perfect world, but it was a it was a perfect world that yet needed to be uh, cultivated. Right? So Adam's job was, and Eve's job was to cultivate and develop and to build for the glory of God, and and to innovate in in some ways, like we talked about in weeks past, to innovate for the glory of God, to build that and sustain that. So. As Stiggers also points out, he says Psalm 8 it shows us in an emphatic way that, that man was created. Adam and Eve were created and assigned to have dominion over the earth. 
just as a way of reminder, Psalm 8, verse, being at verse 4 says, What is man that you take thought of him, and a son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you have crowned him with glory and crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So in, in this way, God intended man to be both a son and king. So man is created by God to rule over all God's creation for God's glory. And that mandate is not, is not canceled because of sin. That mandate is still there. Now, God uniquely created man in the image of God to fulfill this mandate. Right? So the fact that in, in uh, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28, you have the mandate given, then you're to, we're told that people are made in the image of God, and then the mandate is reiterated. There's a reason why the image of God is right there. And that is because the image of God, being made in the image of God, was critical to carrying out the mandate. Mankind was placed here to be God's representative and God's stewards on this earth. Man was created in the image and likeness of God, which is mean he, it means he is like God in some ways, and that he represents God's, uh, God's, God's uh, rule here on earth. It was critical. Man was created to be God's, God's uh, vicar, God's representative here on earth. And God created man as the pinnacle of creation and placed him as the image bearer for the rest of creation. And God placed man in, in three different relationships. Immediately being created, man was placed in a relationship to God. He was placed in a relationship as soon as his wife was created. He was, he was placed in a relationship with another human being. And he was placed in a relationship with creation. These are the three relationships. So the created world was to be the canvas and paint with which, which, with which mankind would create a masterpiece for the glory of God. See, creation was never given so that man could pursue his own selfish ends and fulfill his own glory. Creation was given so that mankind would use it in a way to express the glory of God by his creative ability. And as God's image bearer, man is constituted uh, to, to glorify God in all three relationships, with God, with man, with creation. But as, as we know, as we looked at in detail in weeks past, man chose to doubt and disobey God, with, with the result that sin and death became commonplace. Man's relationship with God was instantly damaged. Man sinned and became spiritually dead and began the process of physical death. Man's sin brought the wrath of God, which is, which is God's righteous displeasure towards sin. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ephesians 5.6 states that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God's wrath hangs over all in rebellion to, against Him and will be manifested in the future day of the Lord in the final judgment in the lake of fire, which you read about in Revelation chapter 20. Paul said to the unrepentant in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. When man sinned, he invited God's judgment and punishment. 
And because he is holy and righteous, God must punish sin. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 46, that the wicked will go away into eternal punishment. And the seriousness of sin's penalty was demonstrated when the Son of God took upon himself the punishment for all sins, the sins of, the sins of all of God's elect on the cross. Man's sin also created enmity between man and God. It put man in a hostile um, relationship. Romans 5.10 says that before salvation in Christ, people are enemies of God. And, and people don't always think of themselves in that way. They think that there's a neutrality that they can have with God, but that is simply not true. You are, we are born as enemies of God, and we are only any, in any different kind of state because of the work of Christ and bringing restoration. So not only was man's relationship with God damaged, man's relationship with other people was damaged because of sin. And again, all this relates to his to the creation mandate because man needed to be rightly related to God in order to carry out that mandate. And man needed to be rightly related to other human beings to carry out that mandate. So man's relationship with other people was damaged. Um, first, God said the woman we would have increased pain in childbirth so that even the procreation act of another person would be difficult. Um, add on top of that, tension between man and woman and the basic and necessary union of marriage would also be, um, be characterized by conflict. Uh, God told Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That desire is, is, is likely indicating a, a desire to control one's husband. So Genesis 3.16 predicts a struggle and conflict within marriage, something that was to be unified, totally unified uh, as as, uh, two human beings and God brought them together in marriage, that the most intimate love relationship would be characterized at times by this conflict, which our world knows all too well. And also, the, the strife would not stay within marriage. It would uh, there would be strife between persons just in general in society, as we see that uh, played out on our television screens and on your iPhones and the news channels every single day. For example, Cain slew his brother Abel for a jeal- for jealous reasons. Lamech killed a young man who struck him. And the history of mankind, with our long litany of wars, speaks to the truth of this the murders, hatred, strife. So man's relationship with God was destroyed. Man's relationship with other mankind was was, uh, contaminated and corrupted. And man's relationship to the earth suffered. And the earth began to work against him. See, no longer would the earth willingly yield its produce to man. That's what God intended. But here, the earth would actually, part of the curse was the earth would work against man, creating thorns and thistles. Man's mandate to rule and subdue the earth and its creatures uh, isn't revoked just because these things are difficult or work against us. Adam, uh, God told Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, not many of us are, do much gardening or farming, so if you do, you, you understand that in a literal sense. But it impacts everything we do. Everything we do is impacted by sin. Every profession is impacted by sin. This isn't just the farmers. There are thorns and thistles in every profession. That is there because of the curse. And yet God's expectations that we would live for His glory haven't changed. Just like His expectations of holiness 
haven't changed. God's expectation that for us to be uh, successful in ruling over the earth uh, remains unfulfilled, just like call to holiness remains unfulfilled. Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verses 5 to 8 reaffirms that God created man to rule creation, but it recognizes that uh, from verse 8, it says, and I quote, at present we do not see everything in subjection to him. Not yet. That day's coming, but not yet. Man disobeyed God and failed the kingdom command to rule and subdue creation. And though still made in the image of God, and the image was marred and distorted, man still has this responsibility. But man, is, as we looked at in past weeks, became totally corrupt in his being and could do nothing to save himself and could do nothing really to restore that mandate. You see, not only do we need a Savior to forgive our sins, we need a Savior to redeem us and, and to give us his righteousness. We need a Savior to um, help us fulfill the mandate for the glory of God that he has given us. But, but I want to remind us that God was not caught off guard by sin. It wasn't as if he had plan A and then all of a sudden things happened in the garden of which he didn't foresee and he had to go to plan B. God only has a plan A. He, and he is working that out. God was not caught off guard by man's failure and had already, had already initiated a plan to bring a perfect man who would save and redeem mankind and fulfill the mandates given to Adam and Eve. So hope was not lost. Right? Hope is not within ourselves, but hope was not lost because God would provide a Savior. Though humanity fell, He would provide a Redeemer to draw Him out of that um, the, the pit of, of, um, of sin. Adam and Eve and their descendants anticipated this Deliverer. We see the promise of the Deliverer early in Genesis. And man's right to rule the, the world was affirmed, uh, for example, in Psalm 8, which we read, even after sin, but in this present age, he is not ruling earth successfully. That ability waits the world to come. Now, while waiting for the timing of the Messiah, the perfect man, God raised up a special nation, Israel, and leaders who were called to lead God's people in the world in righteousness. So God raised up people, again, who would not be the perfect Messiah, the Savior, but they were nonetheless called to rule in God's stead for His glory. And God raised up people, saved by grace, looking forward to the cross, to further this plan to save mankind and creation. These include the covenant heads such as Noah and Abraham, Moses and David. But each of these men was sinful and unable to be the Savior. Each of them failed. And in fact, Israel as a nation, was called to be God's representative and to carry out, to be God's ambassador to the world. And, and it would yet fail that too. This, each king in, in the long line of kings of Israel failed uh, to model obedience and righteousness in Israel. And yet, hope was not lost. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son as the ultimate man. When Jesus arrived, He, he was called the last Adam. That's a designation that comes from 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15, uh, verse 45. Jesus is called the last Adam. In other words, He is specifically taking the mantle that was lost by Adam. What was lost in the garden is reclaimed 
by God. And that includes this mandate to have dominion for the glory of God. Jesus is the perfect image of God who, who manifested God's intent for humanity. In sum, not only will Adam and his descendants suffer and die as individuals, but also all his relationships will suffer, as we looked at. And only the Lord Jesus will be able to restore mankind's relationship to God, to one another, and to creation. As the last Adam, Jesus will love God and people perfectly and will manifest absolute control over creation, just as he did at times during his earthly uh, advent when he came on earth. That's, you know, he commanded the waves and they were still is one example of that. It, it will take this last Adam, Jesus, and, and those who believe in him to successfully rule on the earth. And we see a glimpse of this in what we read in, in Revelation uh, 5. Now, this will occur, this, this reigning with Christ will occur when Jesus returns and establish his millennial reign. And we see a glimpse of that in Revelation 20, which we'll look at in a, in a moment. Now, beloved, understand that, that Jesus fulfilled God's plan for man. Jesus was righteous and obedient. Relationally, Jesus loved God and, and loved people infinitely. Functionally, he showed his dominion over the earth by his miracles. Uh, I want to point your attention to a passage in Hebrews talking about Christ's fulfillment of this. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and I'd like to read to you uh, verses uh, beginning at, um, at verse 1. And you'll notice that this passage quotes Psalm 8, so there's a relation here directly back to Psalm 8, and that's pointing to Christ as this fulfillment. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. For He did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And then the passage continues on and pointing to Christ. This is the ultimate man. God's plan for the ultimate man was that he would be rejected and killed. Right? He wouldn't come and immediately fulfill all that all that uh, man was to do in Christ's first advent. He was he presented himself as king, and yet his uh, kingdom, though near, was in a sense the reality. The bringing of it was far. Uh, though he was a king, people did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. With his death, Jesus atoned for the sins of God's image bearers and laid the basis for the kingdom of God 
and for the restoration of all things in the future. Now, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Reading about Christ, being at verse 15. Here Paul tells us, For he is the image of the invisible God. Talking about Christ here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So there's this, this restoration and reconciliation that comes through Christ and Christ's work, through his death on the cross and, and resurrection. This culminating, uh, this culmination of all things in Christ. Jesus ascended to heaven and sits even now as the exalted Messiah at the right hand of the Father in heaven, ruling his spiritual kingdom while awaiting an earthly rule. You see, it's important to fulf- completely fulfill the the earthly mandate that was given um, that was given by God to mankind that Christ rule on the earth, and this is this is in part one reason why we believe in a millennial reign of Christ yet in the future here on earth. It is to fulfill that earthly dominion. It is that Christ would be exalted in fully fulfilling that mandate that God gave to mankind back in the garden. So while we, while we wait that time, Jesus now perfectly leads God's people in paths of righteousness. Even now, he's doing this. Even now, he rules a spiritual kingdom. But that spiritual kingdom will be made manifest as an earthly kingdom to completely fulfill man's creation mandate, to rule and subdue the earth. All this is based on Christ's atoning work and his establishment of a new covenant at the cross for those who are united to Jesus, those who receive salvation, those who are being conformed to the image of Christ, who is the perfect image of God. So during this time, God is sanctifying his people that we would be, that we would be made more like Christ. It would be increasingly manifesting what the image of God is supposed to be like. Though we live in an evil world, and though we, though we uh, imperfectly bring God's uh, rule to the earth now, Christ will bring it perfectly when his kingdom is set up uh, at his return. When Jesus returns to the earth, he will bind Satan and remove his presence from the earth. Now we, we, uh, we see a glimpse of this in, in Revelation. And then, then with those, when Christ returns, with, with those who belong to him, Christ will rule with, for a millennium, for a thousand years, over an earthly kingdom that fulfills the kingdom mandate of Genesis 1. And Jesus will rule the nations and share his rule with, with the saints. And again, we'll, we'll um, just, just look for a minute at, at what Christ does. The, this, this ruling of the nations is really pictured for us all the way back in Psalm 2. 
if you would just uh, turn with me a minute, Psalm 2. Talks about how the kings of the earth, um, universe one, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and, and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. Now God's response is this. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will then speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That, that king that king is ultimately Jesus Christ who will rule the earth and bring all things in subjection to his will. Uh, we see a, a, a glimpse of this also in Revelation. If you turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Beginning at verse 26. Describing... Christ, he says, he who overcomes, the one who has faith in Christ, says, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who is near to let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's Christ's message to the church at, at Thyatira, and he would share that rule, right? That he would rule, and that the person who who doesn't shrink back, if he holds fast, he overcomes, all the way to the end, he will share that authority to rule, and uh, which is really a fulfillment of that kingdom mandate in the, in the beginning. So God will usher in the eternal kingdom when the when the ultimate man, the ultimate God man, Jesus removes sin and restores perfect righteousness. When, when will he do this? Well, we see a glimpse of this in Revelation 19 and 20. So turn with there, Revelation 19. Being at verse, uh, verse 11, chapter 19. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is that king who comes to rule, to, to bring, to uh, put to death those who will not uh, submit to his rule. He will bring about a, an end to the rebellion. Right? set up his kingdom, which we, which we see, um, and then finally bring about perfect righteousness. So even in the looking in the in beginning of verse, uh, sorry, Revelation 20, beginning at verse 1, 
I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So describing that millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years, Christ will reign perfectly and those who have faith in Christ will rule with him. Again, that's important because it fulfills that that Genesis mandate um, that God gave to man. And, and yet even then, there will, there will be sinners yet ahead when, when, uh, who will rise up against Christ. When Satan is released from the abyss, he will cause the nations of the earth to, to rise up against the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that great uh, battle as they assemble, assemble against God is over before they know it. Right? Um, we see God bringing great judgment upon them in Revelation 20 and in 21, setting up a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, sin is eliminated, and that mandate to be God's representative uh, is, is on that new kingdom and, uh, sorry, the new earth and the new heavens. Now, God will be with us so that we'll look much different, but not much different than God walking with Adam in the garden before the fall. Right? So Adam still had that mandate to be God's representative, even though God was right there, because that, that brought him praise and brought him glory. Look at me at verse chapter, uh, sorry, Revelation 22, looking even at verse 5, talking about this eternal state. And there will no longer be any night, and they will, they will not have any need of, of the lamp, I'm sorry, the light of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. They will reign. Of course, God's reigning. But you understand, us carrying out the mandate that God gave us in the garden is going to continue in the eternal state. Right? You're not just going to be sitting around, uh, as the world puts it on, the, you know, just playing a harp and singing, which they, they portray as rather dull and boring. Right? Life in the eternal state with God has, has eternal joys. See, at God's right hand are pleasures of which we haven't even discovered yet. Right? Haven't even discovered. Take the greatest pleasure you've ever had on earth. Right? And that's going to pale in comparison to the pleasure that we're going to have at God's right hand and serving Him in the eternal state. We just can't fathom. Mind has... Has not uh, God hasn't written all this. Uh, mind cannot conceive of what God has in store for His people. So what has been impossible for thousands of years, that is, 
Man carrying out the mandate, the dominion mandate, will happen. The story ends well for redeemed humanity because of the perfect man, Jesus Christ, the ultimate man who comes to rule in God's stead and to redeem us. It's not that he just comes and rules, but he redeems us, calls us alongside as brothers, sisters, as children of God, and has us reign with him. He doesn't have to do that, but he does it for the glory of God, and he does it for our good. Beloved, in this series on biblical anthropology, we've looked at a lot of different things, and and there's a review sheet that's been passed out to you with uh, each of these points with some key passages. Um, Just to give a summarizing review, biblical anthropology sees that man and woman were suddenly created by God on day six of creation. Biblical anthropology starts with Adam, uh, The Bible clearly teaches that Adam was a real historical person. Biblical anthropology embraces man and woman as having been created in God's image, an image tarnished by the fall but redeemed in Jesus Christ as the one who is the perfect image of God. Biblical anthropology understands that man's constitution is a complex unity comprised of both a physical and spiritual part. Biblical anthropology understands that God created gender and human sexuality. Biblical anthropology understands that God created marriage as a lifelong union of one man and one woman. Biblical anthropology understands that God created gender and marriage for procreation. Biblical anthropology understands that deviations from God's design for gender, sexuality, and marriage bring about pain and judgment instead of blessing. Biblical anthropology understands that human personhood begins at conception and continues without end. Biblical anthropology understands that death is an intrusion into God's creation that is the result of sin. And biblical anthropology understands that death does not end one's conscious existence, but ushers one into heaven or hell. Biblical anthropology understands that death will be overcome by God's power to resurrect the dead. Biblical anthropology understands that God created mankind's diverse ethnicity and established the nations for his glory. Biblical anthropology understands that God established human government as a mediatorial institution to provide social order in the world, which includes the restraint of sin. Biblical anthropology understands that God is the creator of culture and that he demands that man employ and develop the culture for his glory. And biblical anthropology understands that God created man upright, but he has sought out many devices. And really the final one, biblical anthropology understands Jesus as the ultimate man who completely fulfills that dominion mandate that God gave to mankind back in the garden. For our conclusion to this whole series, I'd like us to turn to Ephesians 8, I mean Ephesians chapter 1, back to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to leave you with these thoughts. We talked about in the beginning, we read to you Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 10. But just as a reminder, verse 10, that that there's a summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. There's a summing up of all things in Scripture, all things in life in Christ. And we know that he works in our lives to draw us to himself. We get a glimpse of that in Ephesians 2. So look at Ephesians 2. You are dead in your trespasses and sins 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them we, too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Notice that beautiful passage ties together the fact that we were dead. God brought us to, to life by faith. That faith is not, uh, is not something we conjured up on our own. It is even that faith is a gift so that no one can boast. And that God grants us that faith so that we would walk in righteousness and that we would do those good works which he has prepared beforehand for the foundation of the world. So that, that, is our, that is our kingdom mandate right now, that we walk in those good works by faith following our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and those good works mean being reliant on the word of God. Satan's strategy is to try to uh, cause you to doubt. Right? Turn with me to Ephesians 6 and we'll, we'll, I'll show you where this is, where this is going. In a sense, it's going back to the garden, but with better defense. In the garden, Satan introduced temptation to Adam and to Eve. Satan caused mankind to doubt God's word. And so in Ephesians 6, Paul gives us the complete armor of God. Beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with that, Paul pleads for them to pray for him. But beloved, God has not just sent us as his children into a garden without defense. As his children, he has given us a defense, a sure. He's given us a down payment of his Holy Spirit. And he has given us his word, which really forms the armor. The, the faith in him is what's going to be challenged in these days ahead. If you look at this list of biblical uh, the, the, the building blocks of biblical anthropology. Our world is already challenging most of these, and they're going to become even more challenged. So the question is going to come in the future, 
Will you trust God's word or will you doubt? If Satan isn't already uh, causing that mind to go in your mind, he, 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 he's going to because that's what he does. But, but notice in verse 16, right? All of the armor is important, but I just wanted to highlight verse 16, that you take up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. They're flaming arrows that have doubt written on them, that are shot at you, right? Daily, weekly, monthly, right? And how do we defend ourselves against this flaming arrow? But it's with the shield of faith. It's with that confidence that God's word is true. I will not doubt God's word. No matter what happens in our culture, no matter how many people make fun of me, no matter how our society changes, though, though the government may fail, we will not doubt God's word. Cling to it and rely on it. He is trustworthy and he will carry you through that. See, God's wisdom is always better, always purer, and always brings his blessings when we rely upon it. Right? Don't believe the world's um, and Satan's doubts that they cast upon God himself and his word. We must rely on this completely and fully as his people. And if you will do that, God will open up opportunities for you to proclaim Christ. Sometimes it's just going to be because your life's so different than others. Other times, you're going to have opportunities to actually proclaim the gospel with your mouth. But your life will be a testimony, will be a representative for Christ here on earth. To be that ambassador that he calls his people to be. And if you are here this morning and or listening online and don't know whether or not you're a Christian, don't know whether you're a child of God, I just call you to, to really contemplate Ephesians 2, what we read through, that by faith in Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life, even today. Your sins can be forgiven, and you can be made a child of God, protected by the wrath of God by Christ, and brought into His kingdom by faith in Him. Today could be the day of your salvation if you trust in Him. Beloved, trust in the Lord's Word and He will bless you and honor you all the days of your fleeting life. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we want to thank You that You are the restorer of all things. You're the creator of all things. But You're also the restorer to bring about a restoration a restoration of, of our relationship with you, our relationship with one another, and our relationship to creation for your glory. Lord God, help us to live as your ambassadors, to pursue righteousness and holiness, and to pursue honor of Christ. Lord, uh, to be your ambassadors, uh, shining the light of Christ into the dark world. For your glory and your honor, it's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.